Over the past 14 years, I observed eight laws of trust. I didn't invent them, I observed them. And the last one is the trust is a two-person game. The level of trust that someone has in you is the product of their trustability, their willingness to trust other people, and your trustworthiness. And there's almost nothing that you can do about the former, their trustability, and everything you can do about the latter, your trustworthiness. So the starting point in building trust in an organization or in any relationship is to build your trustworthiness. And the first step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. To build trust, we must therefore first assess trustworthiness. I looked up tools to assess trustworthiness, but I'm afraid that given the eight laws of trust and mainly the fact that trust is relative, that those tools just won't work, or at least not good enough. In this episode, I will explain why an existing off-the-shelf, probably self-trustworthiness assessment will not work, but I will also describe how you should assess trustworthiness. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? I'm not going to quote what specific tools I looked at, but but I did a pretty comprehensive uh, research of tools to assess trustworthiness, uh, whether it was a self-assessment or a third-party assessment or somebody who needs to trust you or just anybody else. I found a few tools, but I wasn't happy with them, mainly because each and every one of those tools assumes that trust is universal and absolute. So they focus only on the absolute or universal things, uh, not, not the relative or the contextual ones. So for example, I tell the truth. So here is one thing that you're going to assess. I tell the truth. Yes, telling the truth is universal, is absolute. It is one of those components that make a person trustworthy, but it's not the only one. If I look at trust law number two, trust is contextual, the questions that you would typically see in in such a self-assessment tool is something like, I'm competent. So this is a pretty generic thing. It's, It's not in the context of what I do. So when I say I'm competent, I'm competent in what? Now, if I had asked all the things that somebody could be competent at, it's an unattainable number of questions. So for example, if you want to test somebody, if you want to test somebody's trustworthiness or assess trustworthiness as a pilot, you need to have questions such as, how many hours do you have? Well, that's not a question you're going to ask about a software programmer, right? But, But it is an essential question in assessing trustworthiness of a pilot. 
What is your, you know, if you're a Navy pilot and you land on aircraft carrier, what is your average landing score, which is something that the uh, landing officer, uh, the LSO, uh, gives you? He, they actually tell you what is your score in landing. That's something that's critical if you want to assess competence of a Navy aviator. Not so much a surgeon. There are other questions. So, you know, it's it's very simplistic to say, I'm only going to ask the uh, generic questions about competence, for example, such as I'm competent or assess my competence. Law number three is the trust is personal. And so, you know, when one of the items that I found in one of those surveys said, I'm accountable. What does that mean? Who cares if you think that you're accountable? What's important is the other person. What does the other person see? Do they think that you're accountable? And by the way, there is no standard there either because this is a lot more personal. This is a lot more relative component because different people would rate you differently. And, you know, one of the examples I always use is, uh, and, and this would go probably to competence, um, how good am I as a professor? And when I look at students that sat in the same classroom, one of them gave me five out of five in ratebyprofessors.com. Another one gave me one out of five. You have to wonder, who are you going to ask? Every person is different. Uh, you can't see it the way they do. Law number four is that trust is asymmetrical. So, for example, one of the items that I found in one of those surveys is that I'm willing to trust others unless they prove, uh, prove themselves untrustworthy. Who cares? Who cares if you're willing to trust other people? That's not an indication of your own trustworthiness. Your trustworthiness is not a function of whether you trust others and how much you trust others, including the person you want to be trusted by. Trust is asymmetrical. You know, the trust law number five is that trust is transferable. So you have to separate what they know about you from where you act. And most of those surveys don't separate those. Trust is dynamic. It changes all the time. That's something to keep in mind. Trust is a two-person game. It's it's a dance. It, it doesn't... Uh, typical uh, assessments don't include trustability. And then the, the last point I want to make is that the components, they're different models. There are different models of trustworthiness. I have my model. Others have their models. Mine, uh, for example, I'm just going to take three of them. Competence. Competence is a professional, is technical. Competence, by the way, is probably one of those components that exists in every assessment, in every model of trustworthiness. It's a professional, it's technical, but it is contextual. And a standard, you know, multiple choice uh, assessment is not going to include the complexity, the contextual component of competence. Personality compatibility, highly personal, but it's also prioritized. You know, if let's say, for example, and, you know, I don't want to get too political, but politics, political affiliation. There are people who will not trust other people because of their political affiliation. At the same time, there are other peoples, there are other people who will not consider that a very high, very important component uh, or subcomponent in their overall personality compatibility. 
I have friends, I get along very well, people I trust a lot, and I would like to assume that a lot of people who trust me on both political parties, because I don't prioritize that, and probably they don't either if they're on the opposite side. I don't know, maybe I have people who are on the same political side of the spectrum, and I'm not extreme on anything. That, that really trust me because they do prioritize it and we're the same. But personality compatibility is highly personal and it needs to be prioritized. And a standard multiple choice assessment is not going to find that subtlety. And, and then you have symmetry. Symmetry is, I don't think, ever assessed. I've never seen symmetry and fairness of a relationship assessed in a self-assessment or any type of trustworthiness assessment. It is highly contextual, and it is highly situational. I was going to skip this, but for the purpose of completeness, I will mention what are the six components in my model. So my model of trustworthiness is made of six components in two groups. One group is the who you are. That's kind of your brand. This is what people know about you before you even enter the room. This is what people think about you when you're not in the room. This is possibly even what they say about you when you're not in the room. And the second group is the what you do. And that is how we interact. And that that has a faster uh, impact on trustworthiness, the, the way you act. So the what you do is made of three, uh, the who you are is made of three components. Competence, this is more technical, professional. But again, it is contextual. You can just ask the same question to uh, assess competence of a pilot, a surgeon, a uh, you know a Navy pilot, and and so on. Personality compatibility—that's the second component that has a very high impact on trustworthiness, especially a subcomponent that I would call shared values, because there are shared values, there are preferences, communications preferences, things that can be measured by Myers Briggs and so on. And, and I'm going to talk a little more about those uh, when when I give examples of how you should assess them. But but for example, uh, th- this is highly contextual, highly personal. That's, that's the important part. It's highly personal. One person would assess you uh, one way, and, and this is going to be important to them, and they're going to consider that a compatibility, while another person might say it's an incompatibility. So, you know, one example is going to be procrastination. Procrastinators would consider other procrastinators compatible. Uh, they would even consider people who stress over schedules and the opposite of procrastinators, they would consider them as compatible because I don't have a problem with somebody wanting to finish the, the project really, really quickly unless they start putting pressure on me. Then I will find this to be incompatible with my own personality. But somebody who does stress over schedules and does want to get the job done as soon as, as they got the assignment would not consider a procrastinator to be compatible. So again, it's asymmetrical, it is personal. The third component is symmetry and fairness. This one is, uh, if personality compatibility was a little more emotional, I would say, this one is a lot more situational. So this is the situation itself. This is whether we contribute the same amount, whether we get the same access to resources, compensation or anything else. Uh, this is how symmetrical. Are, are we on the same side of whatever wall there is? Uh, do we 
all buy into the same vision and mission? Um, do we have a common enemy or are we on the opposite side of uh, competing for bonuses and, uh, and uh, uh, other promotions or things like that? So those are the three components of the who you are. The three components of the what you do, they start with positivity. And positivity is what you contribute into an interaction with the other person that needs to trust you. That's made of two sub-components uh, I call the no BS. How much of what you say and how you say it and is really no BS and how empathetic you are towards the, you know, the person that needs to be... Uh, needs to trust you how much do you see things from their perspective as if you were them as opposed to uh, just you know the world revolves around you so that's positivity and positivity gets accelerated so i should say the impact that positivity has on trustworthiness on your trustworthiness let, let me step it back again uh the impact that the positivity you contribute into an interaction has on your trustworthiness in the eyes of the person that you're interacting with is accelerated by the time and intimacy components. Time is how much time, how frequently, how uh, predictably you interact with the other person. And, and when I say predictably, I'm, I mean in time, uh, from a time perspective, and how intimate you are with them. And by intimacy, I really mean uh, whether, you know, on a, on a scale, on a range that starts with uh, I'm sending uh, uh, non-capitalized, uh, no punctuation text messages to the other person versus I interact with them in person. They can see me. They can see the consistency of my body language and what I say. So this is the model that, that I have developed. This is the model that I will use. So when I talk about uh, how we assess the different components, I will refer to this model. Not, not all of it, just a few uh, for examples. Now we get to the point of how we ask the questions or how we, how we assess uh, the, the different components. And I feel that there is a story here. So, you know, you can probably feel it too. You, you know me by now. There is a story here. And, and I'll take you through the uh, story of when, when I was working on my PhD and I was still taking courses when one day I got a call from my academic advisor. And he called me and he asked me if I needed any help signing up for classes for the next semester. And I said, well, no, I don't. And then he asked uh, if I started thinking about a dissertation topic. He said, you know, it's never too early to think about what your dissertation topic is going to be. And I said, well, I, I did. I, I have an idea. And I'm already working with a mentor. And he said, well, then maybe you need to work with your mentor on defining whether you're going to uh, pursue quantitative or qualitative methodology. So quantitative is more kind of uh, surveys, questionnaires, uh, instruments uh, versus qualitative that's more typically interview based and uh, with with open ended questions. Um, and and my my mentor actually referred to them. I, I like his definition better. He referred to them as quantitative was explanatory or confirmatory. This is where you kind of you have an idea. 
of, of where you're going versus qualitative that he called exploratory. I really like the word exploratory. Anyway, to, to jump to the end of that story, I, the, the, uh, I told him I, I already know how I'm going to research it. And he said, well, I, this is my academic advisor. He said, well, I'm sorry, but it doesn't look like you know what you're doing. And I asked, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, you took for the next semester both qualitative and quantitative research classes. I said, well, you should have started with that question because I want to know both methodologies. Even if I'm going to use one, which, by the way, I ended up using both in my PhD. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it was 348 pages and not, you know, the standard 110 to 130 page uh, quantitative uh, dissertation. So I told him, by the time I'm done with my PhD, I want to know everything there is to know about research. And I took every research class that there was a uh, offered in the university. And this is, by the way, why I don't have a minor in my degree, in my PhD. I don't have a minor because I didn't want to take consulting or uh, I think it was uh, teaching and, uh, and uh, leadership. I didn't want to take any of those as a minor. I wanted to take research really as a minor. So this is why I have a good uh, understanding of both methodologies. Now, if we go back to uh, what the scientific method is, and, and this is, you know, Shira, my younger daughter, is now in her senior year of becoming a teacher, and uh, she has to take uh, a state uh, certification tests, and, and in science, they talked about the scientific method. So this is what we teach kids. We teach them that the scientific method has six components or six steps. You have to have a question, your research question. You do some research to know what is already known. Call it the literature review or just what do we know about this question now? Then you make a hypothesis or call it a prediction, but the term is really hypothesis. Then you test your hypothesis. You do an experiment. Then you analyze the data. And at the end, you reject or you accept your hypothesis. You go, you know, the data supported or rejected the uh, hypothesis. By the way, uh, it's really reject or I didn't find enough to reject it. So it's like we're, we're never really saying that that we that our hypothesis was supported. We just say that uh, we were not able to reject it. And you report your conclusions. Well, that's the scientific method. And a big part of the scientific method is that you make a hypothesis. So it's less exploratory. The, the, the scientific method that we teach kids is less uh, exploratory. But you know what? In, in social studies, and, and I would put uh, trust and trustworthiness into the uh, realm of uh, social studies, it's a lot easier to do because you can use a standard multiple choice form, uh, but it ignores all the laws of trust that, that I mentioned before. So how do you measure trustworthiness or how should you measure trustworthiness? First of all, you shouldn't be asking everyone, even if you had the option, to measure your trustworthiness. You shouldn't ask everyone, uh, am I trustworthy, in, in a very uh, generic way, uh, for several reasons. One of them is the way trustworthiness should really be assessed uh, 
uh, it's just not feasible to ask too many people because this is going to be an interview and I'm going to show you how I propose to do that. But the second reason is because trust is relative and specifically third law of trust, trust is personal. Different people will give you different answers and because of that, you may miss the subtlety of what makes you not trustworthy enough in the eyes of a specific person simply because another person didn't think that that was an issue. So the first step has to be that you identify people who rely on you, people who need to trust you. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's in the organization, in a project team, you need to identify those who rely on you. You need to identify uh, those who depend on you. And, and this dependency, I would take it one step higher and say, let's identify critical dependencies. Let's not worry too much about things that are not critical. Now, we can ask more than one person who needs to trust you, but we may want to give it a different weight. And, you know, this could be a very, very continuous scale, let's say between zero and 100, or it can be just, you know, low, medium, moderate, uh, or high dependency or critical dependency. So, you know, three, four, maybe even two components, but just enough to allow you to weigh those who depend on you more critically higher than those who depend on you less critically. Whatever, I, I would not recommend to just do a 360 and, and interview everybody around you. One of the big questions is, uh, why not a self-assessment? Why not self-reported? Well, simply because uh, you're probably the least qualified person to assess yourself. Uh, because you need to see your trustworthiness through somebody else's eyes. You need to see if they trust you and what holds you back from being more trusted by them. And that's typically not a question you can ask yourself. Now, if you don't have any other way to ask somebody else, then, okay, yourself is going to be the starting point. But I wouldn't suggest that that's what you do, that that's what you rely on. Uh, and one reason is because I really treat the, the the process of forming habits to build trust or your trustworthiness as a pretty intense, long process. And you don't want to start it with working on the wrong thing because you didn't ask a person who critically depend on you, you ask yourself. Another possibility is that um, you ask a third person, a, a third party. And, and what's important is that they know the person who needs to trust you enough to be able to tell you, anonymously or not anonymously, what is it that's holding you back from being trusted by that person that you want to be or need to be trusted by. So use a third party. That's, that's another possibility, uh, a little easier. The best, obviously, is to ask the person who needs to trust you, the person who really does have that critical dependency on you. The problem is, are they comfortable enough to give you the real feedback that you need? And, you know, back in season five, I had six episodes on giving feedback. And, and if you listen to those, you're going to see that there are issues. Sometimes people are afraid to give you feedback. Uh, you know, in in one of the organizations I served on the board of, uh, we actually asked the employees 
when we do an anonymous survey, do they feel that the survey is really anonymous? Enough, if I remember correctly, approximately 60% felt that it was not really anonymous, that their answers can be tracked to themselves. So if this is the case, if the person you really need to know what they think about you and what's holding you back from being more trusted by them, then you may need to find another way. But that's that's the person you really want to hear from. So find a way to hear from them. If they don't feel comfortable, find a way that makes them feel comfortable. If they do feel comfortable, that's obviously the best. And, and once again, don't ask too many people because you might obscure, this might obscure the real issue that's holding you back by being trusted by the people that are critically dependent on you. So how do you find out? What should you do? Well, again, I already told you that my preference would be a qualitative exploratory um, assessment rather than a quantitative one. So this is going to be based on interviews. So you want to ask the person who needs to trust another person or yourself. And by the way, this is again why I think that somebody such as a coach or the HR professional in the organization or, or the leader in the organization is in a much better position to assess your trustworthiness than you are because it's a lot easier for the person who needs to trust you or has a critical dependency on you to talk to that person and give them the feedback, especially if they promise to keep it anonymous. It needs to be interview-based. It needs to be open-ended, not Choose one of the, neck, the the four options, or I strongly agree, I strongly disagree. Yeah, sure, there are a few questions that, that can, you can use that, and we're going to use them more as probes than, than anything else. But you need to keep peeling the onion. You need to use the word why a lot, So or, or what makes you think that. So I'm, I'm going to use just a couple of examples. I'm going to start with competence. So for example, here, here's an example of what would you start when you interview person A about the competence of person B to determine whether person A trusts person B or not. What would you consider the most important element of competence for whoever person B is in their role? So see, it's an open-ended question. What would you consider the most important element? So if you're asking about a pilot, you're going to hear one answer. If you're asking about a surgeon, you're going to hear somebody else, uh, another uh, answer. Even within a project team, a software development project team, you may hear different answers to what would you consider the most important element of competence for that person based on their role in the team. Now that we know what the vector is, now we need to know what the extremes are, what the range is. So I would ask the follow-on question, how would you describe the best possible performance in that element? How would you describe the worst possible performance in that element? So now we have a range. Now I'm going to ask if you, if best, the best performance you describe is a 10 and the worst is a zero, how would you rank that person on that vector. See how we made it so much more qualitative first, but but even now we, we kind of turned it into quantitative uh, a little, but we made it so much more specific to, to a specific relationship. 
then we're going to ask uh, what is the second uh, most important and, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, we can use probes because when you ask the question, uh, what would you consider the most important element uh, of competence for whoever that other person is that you're assessing, uh, you know, how about meeting schedules? Is that important? Would you consider that important? How about finishing what they started? And, and that, again, depends on the role. If somebody's role on the team is to come up with ideas, there is not a lot of value in finishing what they started. Because once they came up with an idea, that's pretty much the end of their role. They need to come up with the next idea. Whereas if somebody has to deliver a some kind of a deliverable to another team or to a client, finishing what you started is going to be much more important. Uh, do they have the required certifications or education or experience? Certification is might be an, an important one. You know, if you're assessing a teacher, whether you, you trust the teacher or not, teachers have to be certified. Electricians have to be certified. That would be a question to ask, and that would rank pretty high. So you're going to ask different questions. Uh, it, you're kind of starting in the same format of uh, what's the most important element of competence? What's the best in this element? What's the worst? And then how do you rank them? And then you keep on going on and on. Uh, you know, ask, like, get two, three of those components. You want to get where they stand on competence at the higher level, if, if there is any issue. I mean, if you ask the question and they tell you what the best is, here are the three most important things for a person in that role. And here's what's the best. Here's what's the worst. And I rank them 10 on all of them. Well, if they rank them 10 on all of them, you have to wonder, do you have the best, the most competent team member ever? Or maybe they really are afraid of telling you what they really feel. Personality compatibility is, is a little different. So uh, here... I'm going to ask the person who, again, needs to trust uh, the person that we're assessing. We're going to ask them, describe a personality trait that's important to you. Again, we're, we're going to have some probes like, uh, you know, uh, telling the truth is, is a pretty easy one, uh, but procrastination or do they do you like hearing the bottom line first or last? So is that important to you? Uh, Restaking profile. Um, how would you describe the other person's uh, or, you know, maybe you start with how do you describe yourself in that personality trait? So what are you? Oh, I'm, I'm a risk taker. OK, so now I know where you are. How would you describe the other person? Oh, the other person is the opposite of a risk taker. Um, so now that you know that, you know, risk taking is an important trait, personality trait for you. Uh, and that you're a risk taker and the other person is not, would you consider the two of you, along with that personality trait, to be similar, complementary, opposite, maybe conflicting, or, or simply different and it doesn't matter? Uh, and then ask, is this good or bad? And, and this is important because, you know, I might be a risk taker, the other person might be a, a non-risk taker, uh, somebody who's risk averse. So I'm going to say, you know, I'm risk taking is is the trait. Uh, I describe myself as a risk taker. I describe the other person that I critically depend on as risk averse. 
I consider us, you know what? I don't know that I would consider this opposite or conflict. I think that I would consider this complementary because I would look at the other person as somebody who's keeping us as a team, uh, keeping our feet on the ground. So I, I see that as value. So when, when the question comes, is it good or bad? I'm going to say it's actually good that we're complementary, that, that we're opposite. You know, I'm an idea generator, uh, but I'm not somebody who takes things through the finish line, over the finish line, across the finish line. The other person, well, they are not great at, at coming up with ideas, but they're great in taking things across the finish line. So what are we? We're opposite. But this is a good thing. We, we have to have both. I mean, if the other person was another idea person, I would say we're similar. Is it good or bad? It's bad because we don't have anybody who can take ideas through the finish line or across the finish line. And again, I'll refer you to Pet Lencioni's uh, The Working Genius Assessment that identifies six different, uh, call it roles or stages in the project. Uh, and uh, what he is trying to do in, in his framework is to identify all the different roles and the different people and make sure that you have everyone in the same role and that you're not trying to get someone to do something that they're not really comfortable with. Uh, you can be uh, using in, in this part for personality compatibility, uh, you can use different third-party assessments like Myers-Briggs, MBTI, or DISC, or Enneagram, which is Maya's, my, my older daughter, Maya's uh, favorite, or anything else. That There is a website, by the way, called testyourself.psychtests, P-S-Y-C-H-T-E-S-T-S.com. So testyourself.psychtest.com. And that, they have a lot of free tests, which you can, you know, get to a higher level by, by paying something. And, and it's great. Those are great tools. Uh, so you can use those, uh, you know, to complement assessing personality compatibility. Uh, you know that if you take Myers-Briggs or any other uh, assessment like this, they're going to tell you how to interact with another person. But what I'm saying is that it would tell you whether there is an issue of you trusting the other person or the other person trusting you, depending on who you are in this relationship, uh, based on different personalities. I didn't take you through the other components, the symmetry, the uh, positivity with the two subcomponents of uh, no BS and empathy and time and, and uh, intimacy. Actually, time and intimacy are relatively uh, pretty prescriptive, uh, prescriptive, pretty absolute and universal in how you assess them. I mean, uh, are we in the same, do, do we work in the same building? Do, do we, how often do we uh, meet? How often do we communicate? How often do we meet one in one in person and, and so on? So those are a little easier to assess. So you can probably use some kind of an online tool for that. So you can, you can have a combination of how you get to the bottom line and the bottom line is really to identify something that you're going to be working on or the person who needs to improve their trustworthiness or to eliminate the thing that's holding them back from being more trustworthy. Uh, these tools or a combination of tools can help you identify that. Now, I know that what I described here is harder. It takes more time. There's no doubt it's, it would be so cool if you could use one of those online 
standard self-assessment tools to assess trustworthiness. But once you consider the eight laws of trust, the trust is relative, trust is personal, it's asymmetrical, it is contextual. Once you assess all of these, you realize that you can't. That there is no universal absolute tool that would assess trustworthiness uh, and not in, a, not in an accurate way. So it, it does take time. I'll tell you here, I, I'm considering how I can use some kind of a more complex online tool with some logic built into it, with some open-ended entries. I'm, I'm going to have to spend time thinking about how to assess that such that you will get the one thing that you really need to work on. So th this is this is a major project if I wanted to do that. For now, what I'm saying is just I'm going to create as part of my three-day masterclass or Trust Habits masterclass, I'm going to create some kind of a user manual that would help you conduct those interviews, combine it with everything else so that you will be able to assess that component of trustworthiness or any element of trustworthiness that needs to be worked on to increase trustworthiness. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.